Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to, excuse me, may I have some more? We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. I am Brad Kramer. My co-host is Christine Struble. And Christine, it's been a couple weeks. Um, I guess we let the cart lead the horse in this case. We wait for the good interviews and the good content before we produce an episode. And now that we have a couple good ones today, um, it's it's time for us to talk. But before we do that, we are coming off of Mother's Day. And I can't help but wonder whether your boys hopped in the kitchen for you or how Mother's Day was celebrated in your family from a culinary standpoint. Oh, um, my children did get into the kitchen and uh, very nicely made uh, brunch in our household it, uh, there was a slight adaptation we'll say maybe in the middle of cooking uh the oldest one learned a very important lesson when it, you want to melt chocolate even though the directions say it takes four minutes to melt in the microwave they really mean that you should do like 30 seconds at a time otherwise <laughs> that bowl of chocolate and Nutella turns into a molten disaster. Uh, see, now I'm not sure I would know to do that either, unless it was well, clearly indicated in the instructions. Well, I, I, I was not part of the whole recipe uh, selecting scenario or anything else. This was all done by the men in my household and, and they did do a very good job of what, showed up on the plate eventually. So there were some learning experiences, which is very important when you're cooking. Um, yes, but uh, uh, you, you need to be a little more judicious when it comes to uh, melting chocolate in the microwave. Don't and do did, it all. Did it taste good? Well, uh, the first one that had a little mishap uh, needed to go out to the patio to cool for a period of time before it could uh, nicely be cleaned. And then there was a, a do-over. So uh, the, the brunch that was supposed to be around 10, 30, 11 was more like noon. But luckily there was a mamosa involved while, during the wait. So shocking, I know, Brad. So you were, con you were content waiting. I, I, I had a good book uh, after watching, what is it, Sunday morning on CBS, and then found a nice little light read and eventually had some food. And, and the, what they did put on the plate 
at afterwards was really good. And, and the funny thing is um, the part that they mastered really well was the perfectly crisp bacon. And that was done right. The first time it was the, you know, baked pancake with the Nutella and chocolate that was the one that screwed them up. They got the hard thing. They missed the easy thing. I don't know what's up with my children. I think you need to give them an insider's tip and suggest that they do what most of the shows on Food Network do and have swap outs ready. You know, normally it, it's it's really kind of funny in our household. The easy things are the ones that kind of mess people up. But give my youngest kid a, here, make make hollandaise and they can make one that doesn't break. It makes no sense. Augusto, sweetheart, save some room for later. Oh, uh, Augustus, please don't do that. My chocolate must never be touched by human hands. Please don't do that. Don't do that. You're contaminating my entire river. Please, I beg you, Augustus. My chocolate. My chocolate. My beautiful chocolate. So, like I mentioned in in the open, we have not had an episode drop in a couple of weeks pending a couple interviews. And what I find interesting is some episodes we have what I would call lighter, more fun interviews, um, a little more levity, a little more humor. And this week's a little different as far as I'm concerned. Um, We will hear shortly an interview you did with fashion designer slash passionate home cook, Peter Som. And I'm going to ask you about that in a second. And then coming up a little later, um, my interview with popular uh, Top Chef all-star slash alum, Gregory Gorday, who has a brand new cookbook coming out this week called uh, Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health. But getting back to Peter Som, um, it sounds from the interview that people hear in a moment he is he has branched into his world of food um almost concurrent to the use of pinterest in doing so and as somebody who's never used pinterest or been on pinterest um i know he talks about it at his use but share a little bit about what makes that interesting what makes it successful for him and a little background on that conversation well the the interview with peter came out of uh the new pinterest uh methodology or or mindset of that they believe that their social media platform is the place to foster positive conversations positive creations and their creator code specifically focuses on that. So if, you know, we've all hear different times of how people will post something on uh, various different platforms. And while there might be a hundred positive comments, there's that one person out there who just trolls and says something for the sake of negativity and how that can be harmful for others. So in this um, discussion about looking at how he uses his platform in discussing his food, it's more about not just showing people how he creates an amazing recipe and what the components of that recipe are, but 
in a way, inspiring them to look at the picture, look at the site, and then get out and do. It's more than just, you know, many of us in the past year have spent hours and hours doom scrolling, just, oh, you know, more content. You get that glazed over eye scenario. With this platform and with his thought process, it's, hey, this is what I do. You probably looked at the picture because it's very inviting and it might make you hungry and it might and hopefully it'll make you want to learn more. But at the same time, you are going to go forth and do something. And that positive action has benefits to it. I enjoyed the conversation. And since I know nothing about Pinterest or really what Peter is doing and, and you were able to do a deep dive with him, let's take a listen. What does being being a creator mean to you. It's a phrase that was used often when talking about Pinterest and a lot of the people involved in it, but it's kind of an intangible word. So how would you describe that into what you do both on the platform and in um, your creative world? Well, I think in terms of, you know, what a creator is, I mean, you know, as a long-time, you know, fashion designer and somebody as a creative person, um, for me, being a creator just personally is really, um, you know, taking, making something out of nothing, <laughs> basically. Um, and the, the result, hopefully, is, you know, something that is inspiring, that's beautiful, that's different, that's special. Um, and I think the same thing really applies to being a Pinterest creator, um, you know, you know, I'm creating content that is, I'm generating for, for myself based on my creative uh, thought process and my creative inspiration, and I'm essentially creating something out of nothing. Thinking about you in particular, I mean, I mean, you've had a journey where, you know, many people know you from the fashion world, and now you've taken on a different approach to your creativity in the food realm. How did that journey come about? I mean, it sounds it kind of fits into that meandering, wandering path um, of two different artistic outlets. Well, I've, I've always, you know, cooking has always been a part of my life. Um, so it, whether or not it was broadcast to the world or not, it, it was, it's another thing. But, you know, I grew up cooking next, with my grandmother, with my mom, with my sister, and, you know, when I had my line, you know, doing fashion shows and, and the hustle and bustle of fashion, cooking for me was always a way to keep my feet on the ground and to center myself. And so for me, you know, the evolution felt natural. I mean, I, I, I often say, you know, there, you know, food, clothing and shelter are three basic needs in life, uh, you know, and, and so what makes, and there's a common, you know, thread there, you know, what makes clothing into fashion, what makes food into cuisine, shall we say, what makes shelter into a home, and it is thought and creativity and, and deliberate, you know, um, action, and so, you know, while the techniques are different, uh, I'd like to think as a creative person, I can sort of have a similar process in terms of how I, how I create, uh, whether it's a dress, you know, or, uh, you know, a salad. Well, it, you made an interesting comment that, that cuisine, it kind of has a thought process behind it a little bit. I, I was curious, does that make 
cooking approachable for more people or does it create kind of a a, the, a, a little bit of trepidation if they feel it, it that they look at something that they've searched and said, oh my goodness, I'm not sure if I can replicate that or does it inspire them to say, hey, let me give it the, the chance and see what I can do from what someone else has presented to me? I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, it's, it's, you know, people are looking at recipes and are thinking that they can make it and it sounds inspiring and delicious. I mean, you know, I can only speak in terms of how I cook and my recipes and I like to say I'm pretty impatient. So I don't, I like meals that are approachable, that are delicious, that are simple to make, that pack in flavor. I mean, I... I don't, I'm not one to um, spend like all day in the kitchen making one thing. It's just not how I operate. And then maybe that's part of my fashion background where we just sort of keep on going from season to season. And you're just moving and moving. But I always think about, you know, can somebody make this? Like, uh, you know, is it too complicated? Um, and it's not necessarily about quote unquote dumbing down anything. That's not even what it is. I think. Simple, delicious food can be wonderful and for, you know, with just a few ingredients. And, you know, I, I think about it like when I design, design dresses, I want somebody to buy a dress of mine and wear it over and over and over again and love it. So it's the same way with a recipe. I want them to be able to make that recipe and go back to it and then keep it on repeat, you know, for now until whenever. Um, so that's my personal you know, philosophy in terms of, you know, cooking. And, and I noticed earlier today, one of the things that kind of really resonated with me is f you mentioned how the platform kind of leaves people who are using it as they walk away feeling good, that you're going towards improving your, your life in a real way, in a positive real way. Why do you think that that is so important for the platform right now? I think the idea of creating in a positive environment is probably now more than ever something that is important because, um, you know, I think there are so many other social platforms where it's triggering and it's just stressful. Our lives are stressful. I mean, this past year has been stressful. Um, and to find a place that feels like a safe place where you can, you know, search for things you can create, you can experiments and you know the guiding principle is that is kindness and and to be inclusive and to make sure what you're putting out there is is positive and i think it, it, it sounds very mr rogers and it actually is i mean it is really like just just do what to others how you would do unto yourself uh, be a good neighbor um and you know what i do love about pinterest it is it's true it, it is about you know, looking, you know, look at if you're going to find a great recipe or you want to redecorate, you know, your home or just change your throw pillows or whatever it is, um, it all comes back to what you want to do in real life. Um, it's not a passive experience. It's people are coming to Pinterest to, to apply things to improving their lives in real time. And so it's not just sitting there and scrolling and scrolling. It is, it's something that really is, I guess, IRL, as they say. <laughs> So when you are starting to create your boards, you know, whether it's a food or a cocktail 
um, item that you're sharing. Do you, do you try to show someone the story behind it or are you trying to um, show them how this can incorporate into their world or a little bit of both? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I, you know, when I create a recipe, I, I put a lot of thought into it. And, you know, I, you know, most of my, um, my, my stories, uh, the first, after this cover page, it's, it's me talking about the recipe for a little, just, you know, a bit. Because I, I feel like there is a thought process in there. And I think there's little tidbits of information that um, are interesting for people to know. Like, I'm using gochujang. Where's that from? Or tatar. Or, or put the, you know, this, put the asparagus in the oven, you know, you know, stems first. Whatever it may be, these tips, um, I think, for me, it's not just, you know, there's so many recipes out there. There's so many, there's so much content uh, in the world, you know. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, my hope is that when someone goes to Pinterest and sees my story that they are inspired, they maybe learn something new. Um, and, yeah, at the end of the day, I want them to sit down and have a delicious meal or a delicious dish that um, they've created. And for me, that's actually a huge honor. It's like when I see a woman walking down the street in one of my dresses, I, I'm not, I, it, that doesn't, um, that doesn't, uh, I don't think about that lightly. I think this, this, this person has, you know, loves what they're wearing, this dress, whether it's new or old or whatever. It's the same way um, with, with someone who cooks my recipe. I'm, I'm honored, actually. And as you, you know, evolve your account and, and different items that you share, do you feel that the platform can be a good vehicle for collaboration with other creators? Absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, my history with Pinterest started really when they started. I, I, when I had my regular collections, my team and I used the secret boards uh, for our mood, my mood boards, um, and that was how we gathered images and inspiration for the season. Uh, now we're on to, you know, stories where it's we're creating content and we're putting content out there. So I think this this move towards you know creating content um, is gonna yeah move to I think the sky's the limit really, and I love the idea of collaborating because it is about it is about community. It is about um, like-minded people, you know, all, you know, kind of on this platform, um, whether you're into food or, you know, home decor or whatever it may be, um, there, it's, it's a place where you can create. And I think the natural extension of creation is, is, is communi- communicating and collaborating. Well, when I like look at some of your recipes and I look at the, the, um, contrast between say, uh, you know, uh, savory recipe and a cocktail um, option, there is a very clear style between the two. Uh, the way they're shot, the way that the um, items are presented. It, is that a conscious decision on your part to create that particular visual so that it, it gives the person who is um, going through the account a feeling of who you are and what you're trying to convey beyond the actual recipe itself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, 
I've, I'm a visual person, you know, I, I'm a creative person, so I, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, I've, the, the most fun part is really sh- shooting, shooting the dish, um, and, you know, it started off, you know, while back on my countertop in my kitchen, it's moved to where there's more natural light. Um, it doesn't take a lot of time, but for me, it's, 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 it's a creative outlet for myself. So not just the creation of the recipe, but the actual shooting of, of the recipe, of the dish, the final dish. Um, it is, is a creative outlet for me. So as a creative person, uh, you know, who's done fashion for a very long time and, and now is, you know, in the food arena, um, you know, I want people to see how I see the dish. That doesn't mean that's how they have to do it. And what I love really is when I see in comments that people who post what they, how they made it or how they plated it, um, and they put their own spin on it. And I think that's kind of the exciting thing about all of it. I guess, you know, at the end of the day, for me, it's, I want the food to feel effortless. Um, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not a chef. I'm not, like, I didn't go to culinary school. I'm a home cook, like many um, people on, on Pinterest, and I, I, you know, I just want to show good, delicious food, um, and Pinterest has been a great platform to do that. Thank you for your time today. I really do appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to sharing all of this with um, both our listeners and um, our readers on Food Sighted. Thank you so much. This was so much fun, and I uh, was happy to talk to you. For me, it's you know it's one thing to interview you know a personality about a TV show they're doing, and that's always fun. And I've enjoyed the ones that you've done, and or product placements and product endorsements that that we've done. But I love the ones I listen to where I actually don't know something about the subject or the person, and that was fun. I'm I'm glad you did that one. I'm glad we we were able to share that. Well, it's always good to kind of learn something. If you aren't learning things, what's the point? There you go. I couldn't have said it better. So um, before we get to my interview with Gregory Gorday, uh, which is in conjunction with the release of his new cookbook, um, there are, I, I just, this is another question that I've never asked you, and it's, it's always a fun question. There are people who are cookbook junkies cookbook collectors or some that buy very selectively but have their their tried and true that the pages are worn and they keep going back to it and that's that's where their comfort zone is what is christine's approach to cookbooks do you love them do you buy them do you have a few old standbys tell us about your cookbook collection and your feelings about cookbooks um they kind of fall into a couple different categories. I'm, I will say I'm that bad person who gets cookbooks signed at special events. And then they go on the shelf because, Ooh, you know, Michael Simon signed my copy of carnivore. Uh, (laughs) So don't dare bring those into the kitchen for fear that they would get dirty. Right. Um, But then there's a handful of them that we use over and over. Um, I have, as silly as it sounds, the boys started learning to cook with the old fashioned red cover Betty Crocker cookbook. Cause uh-huh. you can wrong with that. You know, it's, it's a tried and true. Yep. Uh, then I believe uh, we have like a old school gourmet one. Um, 
and it I, I forget the exact cover it's like faded now but it was like yellow and it it breaks down cooking techniques and the hows and the whys and anytime you have a question that's the one you kind of go to because it explains everything um and then there's a cookbook that my husband loves and anytime someone says that they want to learn how to smoke ribs or learn how to do a brisket, he always recommends it to everyone because it's not just a cookbook. It actually tells stories about the people behind how barbecue started. And it's called the Legends of Texas Barbecue. Hmm. And that one, it, it does. I mean, anything from like how Stubbs made his legendary barbecue sauce to you know, just randomly why some people trim a brisket one way versus another. It it is it reads more like a a true book as opposed to a group of recipes. Um, I think for some people, you know, cookbooks have kind of gone away because everyone does everything on their phone. Right. You just push a button or you ask your favorite app. And they pull up, you know, a handful of options and you just go with those. Do See, you and I, I understand the convenience and, you know, we do it too. And you know, my daughter does it every time she decides to go in the kitchen. Um, but then in our world, you know, whether it's writers, podcast hosts, whatever, for example, with Gregory's cookbook, it is so unique and has such a actually tells multiple stories um, simultaneously talking about his past and his addiction and his recovery from addiction and how it affected his diet and his approach to cooking. So it becomes more than just hopping online on your phone and pulling a recipe. His popularity might be that lure, that carrot that people might say, you know what? I love Gregory. I love his approach to cooking from Top Chef. I want to read this. And I would encourage people to read it. And I think they'll enjoy the interview right now. So uh, let's listen. Can you briefly talk about the personal journey you took that became the foundation for every, everyone's table? Sure. I mean, I think for me, it was really about, you know, what I thought about writing a book and I wanted it to be a very personal project and I wanted to do something that helped people no matter, you know, if they came to my restaurant or if they saw me on TV, I just wanted it to be a useful resource to people. And I thought about what were the most interesting things that I ate? Like what, like what, how, how did I really eat? You know, and, and I wanted it to be kind of a natural expression. So for me, it was really about, you know, getting sober 12 years ago uh, when I moved to Oregon after battling uh, a pretty seven year, pretty awful seven year run with um, addiction um, and alcoholism. And just just going all in, you know, um, my road to sobriety took about two years um, since, you know, from the first time I checked into rehab to, you know, walk into my first AA meeting and actually getting sober was about two years. So it was, and that covered three states. So it was a, it was a very bumpy road. But once I decided I wanted to kind of take control of my life and, you know, step into the light uh, and just focus on my career and, and get healthy, I, I went all in. And, you know, I had been going to the gym. I had been running a little bit. And I just kind of want to take things to the next level. So I started going to the CrossFit gym. And, you know, you know that around that time, you know, 12, 10 years ago, 
a lot of CrossFit um, went hand in hand with the paleo diet. So that's really where it started for me. And uh, I kind of went dairy-free and gluten-free separately a year at a time. Um, I gave up processed foods, um, which was probably the, the biggest step for me. And that's something that I, I still true to to this day. But throughout this, you know, the food I made at the restaurant started changing as well um, because, you know, as my diet changed, the food I wanted to make in a professional setting changed as well. And, you know, at the same time, I was working uh, at a, an Asian concept and traveling all over the world and, you know, going to different countries in Asia to study or to do events. Um, you know, I've worked in Spanish restaurants. You know, my, my training is French. Um, my heritage is Haitian. So, you know, I have so many influences and I wanted to continue eating the things that I love, um, but with just a little bit healthy ingredients. So that's where we are. And the book is inspired by all my global influences, my Haitian heritage, um, my French training, and it is a guidebook to just eating better. And, you know, I think what the, one of the biggest lessons I learned throughout the whole life change is that, you know, while we may think that you know, there are all these natural ingredients that come from Mother Nature. Um, not all of them are, are as good for you as others can be. So if you focus on eating the best plants, you know, the best meats, sustainable seafood, foods with the highest nutrient density, the most vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, you can pretty much eat as much of that as you want. So the book does not feel restrictive. Um, it feels generous. Um, it's spicy. It's interesting. It's complex. Um, but it's all designed with a busy home cook in mind. And I have some simple tips and tricks on how to, you know, up your game in the kitchen. But at the end of the day, the recipes are super short. They're very step-by-step -step, and they have in mind um, the busy person who just wants to get something delicious on the table really quickly. So to your point, as I read the book, um, I felt like the flow takes the reader, whether that reader is experienced and confident in the kitchen or uncertain and hesitant in the kitchen and leads them through a really relatable process. I would love to know, because process is always fascinating. Getting to the destination isn't always, you, you don't follow the same direction on the map. When you laid out your initial game plan, and I would love to hear about your process in creating it, following the game plan. And if what your initial concept was is where you ended up. Sure. You know, I actually wrote down about 200 recipes, I think, even before I started writing, um, you know, my story. And I had the recipes in mind. Well, let me go backtrack. I probably wrote about 150 recipes. Okay. And it was actually my writer, JJ, who kind of helped me. JJ Good, who's a, a fantastic writer, and he's just a great person. But he's the one that kind of really helped me kind of set the tone in terms of how I wanted to express the recipes because I was like, hey, you know, I really wanted this to be a book that is very easy to use. I want it to be extremely useful. I don't want it to be foo-foo and chefy. I want everyone to be able to use it. And this is how I cook at home. And he's the one that was like, you have to understand that, like, you know, this is still like a little bit hard. And so we need to go into extreme detail. And luckily, you know, at the core of the recipes were actually simple. But he really kind of helped me kind of shorten some recipes. So that's why the book is actually 200 recipes, because I would have like this sauce and then I would have the recipe. And it's like the sauce and like the protein or the vegetable. And he's like, this recipe is far too long. So that's why the, the sauce chapter be became so long. 
Right. So we've pulled out all these amazing sauces and we've told you, yes, they go great with, you know, maybe, you know, the lemongrass dressing goes great with the crispy skin fish, but, you know, just keep it in the back of your fridge. It lasts four to six weeks, you know, you can pull that out and, and dress anything you want, you know, right. over the course of that time. So um, I love how that all worked out because now you can create this beautiful pantry of sauces and dressing and condiments and preserves and have all this, all these amazing products in the back of your fridge and you can use them and pull them out whenever you want to. You, you can even make, get dinner on the table even faster. Right. So you mentioned that there's 200 recipes in the book and every single one is free of gluten, dairy, soy, refined sugar and legumes. Can you explain the why and also the how taste isn't sacrificed? in executing a, a 200 recipes without including any of those categories, I guess I would use. Sure. You know, I think for me, the one thing that I've been able to do over the course of the past decade eating like this is, you know, find what works, you know, and replacing, you know, uh, soy sauce with coconut aminos, you know, replacing cream with coconut milk. You know, um, there are lots of simple you know, switch them out kind of products that you can use to kind of get the same flavor, you know, using arrowroot starch instead of cornstarch because cornstarch is highly processed, you know, um, really simple things that you can just kind of switch in immediately. Um, and besides that, you know, where the other piece of that is that throughout so many different cultures, there are so many cuisines that are, are already like this. You know, when you think about all the dishes in all the world, you know, there's millions and millions of, of cuisines and, and dishes and, you know, finding dairy gluten-free dishes and, 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 you know, Southeast Asia, it's very easy. You know, there's not a lot of dairy there. There's not a lot of dairy in Haiti. You right. know, um, a lot of the dishes um, in Haiti are, are naturally gluten-free, you know, and there's about a seven or eight Haitian dishes in the cookbook that are, are just as they are. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't mess with them, you know, right. they just naturally are that way. Um, so I think the last piece is, you know, it gets, you know, this is like diving a little bit more and, you know, like obviously some things have to be a little bit different, like the baking section. So, you know, yes, there are definitely recipes in the baking pastry section that are, you know, dairy-free and gluten-free naturally. Um, but, you know, I also have a, a cake flour recipe, um, which is based on coconut flour, almond flour, and tapioca starch. And, um, it's a blend that I worked on and, you know, it makes a beautiful moist cake that you can use the, you can use the same flour recipe for muffins and, and quick breads and cakes. So, so there's three parts. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I wanted it to be as easy as possible to be able to enjoy all these flavors. And, and, and it's really about, you know, just diving in and, you know, I talk about seasoning properly and seasoning from the beginning, a lot of you know, culinary school tricks that we all learn in professional settings, you know, very early on. And I share these with you and, you know, being able to season things in the beginning to add more depth, being able to reduce things enough to develop the flavor, really simple things that we can do at home. Um, and just using powerhouse ingredients, like using fish sauce and using microute lime leaves and, and using scotch bonnet chilies, you know, and, and using chipotles and, you know, um, using coconut oil, just really delicious flavor packing ingredients um that's that's the secret to it all and, it's and as you as you mentioned in the book those are all ingredients even though at first glance they may sound intimidating to the reader who hasn't experienced them 
between their local farmers market and their local whole foods or health healthy market, those are all accessible items. There's nothing that you're going to be sending anybody on a scavenger hunt for. Absolutely not. You know, I think for me, it was extremely important as well that the ingredients were accessible and, you know, yes, even the produce and, you know, other like natural ingredients, you know, I tell you, this is something that you can buy year round. You know, there's like three carrot recipes, you know, red cabbage, broccoli, like you can buy all these ingredients year round, you know, but you know, when it's strawberry season, you know, you probably want to make, you know, a big batch of the strawberry jam, you know, when it's nectarine season, you know, when it's tomato season, you, you probably want to make the high summer salad, you know? Um, so I think it's important to understand that, you know, we need the convenience of things that we can purchase year round, but we also need to respect the seasons and enjoy the seasons and right. something super seasonal, it's still accessible, you know, berries, fruits, corn, um, which is one of the only grains in the book because I just love it. Right. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, you know, I, I wanted the book to be accessible and we all have Asian grocers, Asian markets in our neighborhoods, right. you know, we all have, you know, Caribbean markets in our neighborhoods, um, or just right outside our neighborhoods. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you know, like you, we all order something online with a couple clicks and, and those ingredients, um, if you've exhausted kind of searching in your neighborhood, you know, you can find anything online with a couple right. clicks. So, so expanding on that, um, it's the perfect segue. Every, everyone's table not only represents your Haitian roots, but you're also your worldview of food. Can you talk about the importance of shining the spotlight on the many different cuisines within the book itself? So we've talked about ingredients and, and the composition from that standpoint, but can we talk about the, can you talk about the, the worldview of cuisines and food and its sure. importance in the book? For me, you know, I truly believe that I'm a global chef. I've always been inspired by global flavors. And it really is uh, just the way I love to eat. I've been able to travel quite a bit. You know, I've gone to Asia numerous times. I've gone, you know, I I lived in Haiti when I was younger. I recently started going back. Um, Europe, you know, I'm eager to get back out there and start traveling more. Uh, But, you know, I think for me, what I love about food is a being able to cook and create but two you know i think especially working on this book it's it's really the history behind some of the dishes and some of the ingredients and when you look at how certain ingredients made their way across the country you know like why is there ginger and soy sauce in jamaican cuisine you know and it's because chinese immigrants brought it over and you know it's extremely fascinating you know and and to see the French influence in Haitian cuisine, you know, and there's so much history um, and so much, you know, just information about how ingredients travel the world. And, you know, oftentimes it's not a beautiful story. There's, there's tons of instances where, you know, it was because of slavery that, you know, ingredients traveled and, you know, but we see those effects, you know, spreading from Africa to the Caribbean to, you know, like Southern Creole, you know, we see those ingredients, you know, um, Creole sauce, you know, making its way, you know, um, there's Creole sauce in Haiti, there's, you know, there's Creole sauce in down South, you know, um, they're, they're, they're a little bit different, you know, but tracing those histories and, and tracing ingredients, I think across the globe, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and it tells us a little bit more of the story of, of why certain dishes exist. And I think it's important that we understand that, you know, dishes just aren't a collection of ingredients and behind every dish is, is, is centuries 
of history, um, of people making that dish and of ingredients traveling around the world with people for whatever reason they traveled, be it slavery, be it um, colonialism, be indentured servitude, um, and just be, be, or even immigration. So um, I love that part of food history and, and I, I'm happy that I'm able to in, inject some of that into the book as well. Uh, what's interesting on that is I'm a pretty well-read guy, mm-hmm. yet in watching the Pan-African episode of Top Chef, it was almost like I went to school for an hour and I learned so much from just that episode alone and the African diaspora and how the tentacles to use a word that uh, Kwame referenced mm-hmm. in, in the show. So I'm curious, staying on that topic, did Top Chef Portland and the producers and Magical Elves come to you and say, okay, we are going to do an episode this season on Pan-African food, or is that something that you and Kwame pitched and championed and pushed for and then got in in the weeds with them to, to develop the episode and the restaurant visits and, and the challenge? Sure. No, I, I think, uh, no, Bravo, uh, the network actually, they came up with the challenge. Um, okay. It was, yeah, I think seeing the success of the Jonathan Gold Challenge um, yeah. last year and how we were able to visit restaurants and uh, we were able to hear the stories of these restaurateurs and how Jonathan Gold, you know, helped them change their lives because with his reviews, they became so successful and it really helped establish them as businesses. Um, but I think that was a really important episode because we were able to connect with restaurateurs and we wanted to do, I think seeing the success of that, um, you know, we all want to do it again. And it was really about how do we make it even more important, you know, in light of what's going on nationally. So, you know, I was able to work with them in terms of helping, you know, connect dots with the restaurants and, right. you know, pick out the places. And I think, you know, also for me, it was absolutely a joy to be able to be the person who's on the streets here, who's from here um, to, you know, tell the chefs, hey, you should do this. It's fine. It's going to be safe. You know, <laughs> the big Hollywood producer calls. But uh, but yeah, it was extremely successful and you know, I, I, we're still getting tremendous feedback from that episode. So I'm just really happy that it all came together. When I chatted with Melissa King recently, she said that, quote unquote, Gigi was an awesome host. Um, can you share your feelings about having Top Chef feature Portland this season and talk about your experience as the de facto host and, and an all-star panelist? Sure. I mean, I think we were working on getting Top Chef to Portland for a couple of years, actually. And there were meetings and there were flights out and there were scout visits, but it just never worked out. And of all the years for it to happen, it had to happen during the pandemic, but you know, that's quite okay. And I was happy I was available to be a part of it, but you know, I am a consummate host, you know, I love having people over and um, I've been championing, you know, all things Portland and all things Oregon for quite some time. You know, Uh, I've worked with like the, you know, city and state tourism boards quite quite closely uh, over the past years. So, you know, it was my honor to be able to, you know, offer advice and, and connect the producers with purveyors. And they're like, hey, we need some local seafood. I'm like, I got the guy. And, you know, um, you know, this restaurant isn't calling back. We want them on the show. Sure, like, I'll reach out to them. So, you know, I think on the base with the, the backdrop of, you know, our nightly protest, um, 
for injustice in America, police brutality, you know, coupled with, you know, the forest fires that were rampant right. for the first few weeks of filming, you know, um, it was quite challenging, you know, um, and we had to pivot quite a bit. Um, but, you know, for me, I love my city and I love my state and we've had a pretty rough go throughout this pandemic. Um, and we've been very vocal about everything going on in our country. Um, and we're right at the forefront of that conversation for justice. But, you know, I thought it was, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Top Chef is entertainment. And, you know, I, I think being able to spotlight, you know, good on the best parts of our city and state, I thought that was important. And just, you know, I think, you know, we're in year two of Top Chef being aired during a pandemic. And just like last year, you know, I think it's a good reminder of how things used to be, how things used to, how things need to return, you know, and the good that cooking and community um, and the communities that make our food and their contribution to America, both culinarily and just to the general history of America, how these immigrant groups and these groups of color and just small restaurants in general are, are such pillars of our community. Um, so to be able to, you know, have all these young chefs who are all owners and chefs in their own right, be able to have this platform and tell their stories. And we have a, a vastly diverse cast this year. Um, I think it's, it's fantastic. And I'm just really honored that I was able to be a part of it all. Gregory, thank you so much for your time today. I course, really appreciate your, your generosity. This has been really educational and fun. And uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yeah, anytime. That was uh, sort of an introduction to Gregory's new cookbook, Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health. And you get a really good feel for why he cooks and eats the way he does. But there's only so much you can dive into in a 15 or 20 minute interview. So um, not because anybody asked me to, and I'm certainly not uh, compensated for shilling. I enjoyed the book. It was educational. The recipes are really fascinating. And uh, I would encourage anyone listening to this, if they enjoyed the interview and they're intrigued by what Gregory is doing, to either hop on Amazon and order the book or get to their local bookseller and uh, pick it up. So that's going to put a wrap on this episode of, excuse me, may I have some more. Um, Christine is the, uh, as I call her, the grand poobah of foodsided.com, and I am a contributor. So we hope in addition to listening to this foodcast, you will uh, visit foodsided.com if you have not yet. There is new content up daily, uh, new product releases, recipes, many, many interviews. And uh, it really is a, a great site that uh, Christine, to her credit, curates. So uh, if you enjoy what we do here, uh, I think you'll probably enjoy Food Sighted and you might want to give it a try. In the meantime, um, that puts the wrap on this episode. We will be back with another one uh, within a week that'll... Uh, part of that will include my interview with Renee Paquette about her new cookbook, which we'll go into next time. Christine, it has been a pleasure. It's been nice uh, getting behind the microphone again. Always a pleasure, Brad. Thanks for chatting with me again today. It's always fun. And we will see you all next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.